Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Stork Ring Cock Rodmast. Uh, it's a podcast all about penises uh, based on the book and show Talking Cock by Richard Herring, which is me. Um, I'm sorry it's been a couple of weeks since I've done this. I've been very busy. I'm still a little bit ill. Um, the tour's been going great. I had lots of fun in uh, Norwich and Southend and Folkestone and Colchester this week. Um, thank you if you've come along. There are still 20 gigs to go, uh, so you've still got chances to catch this show. Uh, richterring.com slash talkingcock2 slash tour.php if you want to see all the dates. Um, not too many in the North. Nottingham Playhouse coming up in the North and Derby. Uh, mainly, there's quite a few West Country gigs. There's a few close to London. If you miss the London ones, you can come to Harpenden or Luton. Uh, Leicester as well, if you're in the Midlands. Uh, so there's a few there coming up this week, uh, as I record, on the 1st of May. I'm in Wellingborough at the Castle and the 2nd of May I'm at Luton Library. Both those gigs are selling really badly. So if you know anyone of those two towns, I don't even know where Wellingborough is. Um, so uh, if you know anyone of those towns, please do let them know if you've enjoyed the show. Uh, then I'm in the Machantlech Comedy Festival on Saturday the 4th. That has sold out, though there are some tickets left to see me talking to Pappies as part of the Rich Tang's Leicester Square Theatre podcast which is returning at the end of May properly. And uh, Belfast on the 6th of May, Harpenden on the 8th of May, then I'm in Bristol for the Thursday, Friday and Saturday, 9th to the 11th of May and Nottingham on the 12th. Uh, you can see all the gigs, there's still some more on top of that. If you've enjoyed these podcasts, it'd be lovely if you were to come and see the show or if you could buy the book, uh, Talking Cock, from gofasterstripe.com or soon the DVD, Talking Cock, will also be available from www.gofasterstripe.com. Dot com. We're getting towards the end. It's going a long time though. But I haven't had much time to uh, check through for new stuff. So what I've decided to do for you this week is read another chapter of my book. This is a slightly longer chapter than last time. Uh, what I'm ending up doing is basically doing an audio book that uh, is all in the wrong order. But usually you pay lots of money for these and you're getting it for nothing. So you can be happy with yourself. I would do my best. I want to talk about the history of the penis, um, which uh, gets briefly alluded to in the show, but there isn't time to... Uh, go into it in great detail and then next week I will return to some more stuff from the questionnaire and uh, I will talk about that at the end of the show um, of the podcast if you want to call it a show that's up to you I certainly would not call it that so anyway chapter two of Talking Cog if you want to um, if you want to uh, read along is by page 51 of Talking Cock onwards and you'll see which bits I miss out and which bits I mess around with Anyway, uh, of course, the textbook drawing of the dissected penis was not the only le lesson in male genital makeup that we got at school. An alternative anatomy appeared felt tipped on toilet cubicles, chalked onto blackboards for maximum effect when drawn on one of those raw rolling blackboards, which could be pulled down when one surface became full to provide another clean abroad. Experienced knob gorillas would draw their cartoon penis and then position the board so it was out of sight. It would then be revealed in the middle of a lesson by the unsuspecting teacher. Oh, how the classroom would ring with a laughter of triumph. Also scrawled onto the transparencies of an overhead projector, even traced onto the condensation on the window of a sweaty classroom. It looks something like a, it's a very crude hand-drawn two testicles with hairs coming out of it. The, the shaft of the penis made with a double line indicating the urethra. Uh, and then uh, some 
some kind of fluid coming out the top. If you ever ask for my autograph in any of thing, you'll know what I'm talking about. The beauty of this basic and crude sketch is that it unashamedly celebrates the penis and in its, gore, in its engorged state. The cock is not flaccid or cleft in twain. It's erect and complete and usually caught at the instant of epiphany, the ejaculation. It gives us a flavour of what it means to be a human, to be alive and in ecstasy, something totally lacking in the textbook version of the dissected penis sideways, which you'll remember from school. But more importantly, unbeknownst to the young artists of such murals, they were joining in a tradition that is as old as Homo sapiens itself. One of the first things those homos did when they first became sapiens was to get down their local cave and festoon the walls with pictures of tumescent male genitalia. In the caves of Lasso, as long ago as 13,000 BC, some randy troglodyte etched a clearly human figure with an even clearer boner. Other prehistoric etchings show well-hung men having sex with animals, and well-hung animals having sex with humans. There are even examples of trees sporting erections, perhaps the origin of the concept of getting wood. What, these prim- what were these primitive artists thinking? It's impossible to know for sure. In his book, The Penis, by Dr Dick Richards, I promise you that's his real name, he puts forward some suggestions. In some cases, they were probably fertility symbols or portrayals of fertility rites. Others are examples of parallel magic, whereby in some way the picture of an act or object influence the happenings in the picture to take place in reality. Some examples perhaps are just the wishful thinking of the artist and bear only the same relation to the truth as does the vast bulging graffiti penis drawn on the door of any public toilet in modern-day London. Um, yet who is he to say that the modern-day cave artists are still not expressing some notion of parallel magic? There are plenty of more recent examples of the exploitation of penis power. Mark Strage mentions the Kiwai hunter in New Guinea who may, before making a harpoon shaft will press his penis against the selected tree trunk because he wants his harpoon to be straight, strong and capable of deep penetration and is thus affecting to imbue it with these qualities. A couple of interesting anecdotes from the website reveal that men in the Western world are still using their cocks to attempt to influence events. Here they are. As an adolescent, I used to masturbate thinking about whatever girl I fancied at the time. When I'd come, I would use some of the spunk to write the girl's initials on the wall. I felt that on some primitive mystical level, doing this would cause the girl to go out with me. To be honest, I've still occasionally done this as an adult. I usually have ended up dating the girl, which might be a testament to the strength of my feelings for them rather than the magical properties of my semen. And someone else says, I was chatting up a woman in a crowded pub and offered to buy her a drink. On the way back from the bar, I popped into the gents for a wee and dunked my knob into a glass. I was a bit drunk and I don't know why I did it, to be honest. But I suppose I felt my cock would imbue the drink with magical energy. And when she'd swallowed the potion, she wouldn't be able to resist me sexually. Whether that's true or not, I did end up shagging her. What charming young gentleman you are. I wondered if she'd been so accommodating if he'd told her what he'd done. I doubt it. Or would he, have, would he have had his miraculous cock potion thrown back in his astonished face? So why aren't we generally aware of this link to the past? Once again, in cock terms, our schooling has severely let us down. Any mentions of swords or bayonets in history lessons would have been strictly in their non-pork or beef varieties. Possibly if you'd one of those risque teachers who wanted to be your mate, you may have heard the rumour that Rasputin's not insubstantial penis had been cut off at his death and was now pickled and last seen in the possession of an elderly female French aristocrat. Apart from that, you would think that every man in history had a smooth, hairless groin area like an action man might have. Though by the sounds of it, that's how Rasputin at least ended his days. Even though I studied history at university, though studied might be too strong a word for what essentially amounted to three years of sitting in my room eating crisps, it wasn't until I began this manhood marathon that I realised to what extent the penis had shaped the world, and in some cases, the buildings uh, we live in. Henry Ford was so nearly right, in actual fact, all history is spunk. 
and I'm referring to the buildings. Plans of the Forum of Augustus at the very heart of the Roman Empire show it consists of a long hall with two hemispheres at one end. And visitors to the Channel 4 building in London will notice there's a similar, though this time, vertical feature at the front of their building. As I sat among the bearded nerds that inhabited the reading rooms of the British Library, reading about the history of Mr Happy Helmet, I was amazed and inspired to see how nearly all of the great civilizations of the past were not only unashamed of the penis, they actually celebrated, even venerated it through art, mythology and religion. In our supposedly enlightened times, our attitudes have changed so much that I went on Breakfast TV, to, when I went on Breakfast TV, if you can call Rise that, to promote my stage show, not only was I forbidden to mention the impossibly scurrilous title of my work, I wouldn't even be allowed to discuss the subject at all, not even if I used the correct scientific names. But only by understanding the past can we start to understand why the throbbing crusader elicits so many contradictory responses, given that most things that men do ultimately boil down to the interests of their penis. What is war if not an elaborate attempt to demonstrate who has the biggest cannon? One chapter is not enough to reveal the whole glorious story. I can only give you a brief history of the hymen breaker. I'll attempt to relate a few of the more impressive and amusing ways the cock has been celebrated, why too much willy worship can be a bad thing, and how it is that the wanger has now become an object so obscene that it has to be purged from polite society, history books and poor quality short-lived breakfast television. For those of you who find their appetite for cock wetted and wish to discover more about the cultural history of the penis, I heartily recommend the entertaining, illuminating and exhaustive book, A Mind of Its Own, by David M. Friedman, to which I am greatly indebted. Prehistory. Earlier I claimed that the artistic schlong celebration is as old as humanity itself, but most historians argue that this is not strictly true. Embarrassingly, it wasn't until about 10,000 BC that human beings became aware that pregnancy was caused by sexual intercourse. Well, duh, were the homos really all the sa that sapiens at this point? So male participation in the creation of life was not appreciated. During the preceding uh, 20,000 years, it was the large, largely the fecundity and divinity of women that was celebrated by primitive artists. The Venus of Willendorf, 20,000 BC, is one of the most famous examples, with her pendulous breasts, flabby stomach and massive grey arse. She speaks of a utopian time for the female sex, where big was beautiful, men had no concept of the potency of their own genitalia, and God was a woman. I have to say that I think men would still celebrate their penises, even if we hadn't yet realised that they provided the baby batter in the fishy fry-up that creates life. I can vividly remember being immensely impressed by my own erect penis as a child, long before I really knew what an erection was capable of. Several parents have told me of their young, young lads proudly, even arrogantly, sporting erections in the bath, delighting in the processes of its growth, becoming confrontational if, if chided for their behaviour. Let's face it, the juvenile artist responsible for the illustrations that I'm mentioning of erect penises on walls are celebrating an innate, innate pride in their favourite toy without any real understanding of its more adult function. To quote Carl Jung the phallus functions as an all-embracing symbol in the Hindu religion but if a street urchin, draw, urchin draws one on the wall it just reflects an interest in his penis. However there is no doubting that once primitive man realised that their baton de commandement was essentially in reproduction was essential in reproduction, they really began to celebrate their manhood in pictorial and mythological form. The days of the previous matriarchal society were numbered as creation myths slowly came to concentrate on the male role in reproduction. Uh, the Sumerians, one of the first documented examples of the ascendancy of the love muscle, occurs 5,000 years ago in the ancient Sumerian civilization, sit situated between the Tigris and the Euphrates in what is modern-day Iraq. They had a god called Enki, who was known as a crafty god and a trickster, which makes me like him immediately. I love a crafty god, me. But Enki was worshipped primarily for his amazing cock. This is a Sumerian hymn, and Father Enki lifted his eyes over the Euphrates, stood up full of lust like a rampant bull, lifted his penis, ejaculated, filled the Euphrates with sparkling water. 
Fantastic, that's why I call her him, eh? It shits all over all things bright and beautiful. Enki fills a river with his issue. No mere teaspoonful for him, fellas, but not content with creating the Euphrates without missing a beat and with minimal recovery time, he goes on to do the same for the river Tigris. He lifted his penis, brought the bridal griffs like a big wild bull. He thrilled the heart of the Tigris as it gave birth. He doesn't stop there either. He uses spurting godhead to dig irrigation ditches. Oh yeah, he's helpful. Glutting the reeds with an overflow of sperm creates sexual reproduction and creates the first human baby, baby, not from dust, but from god juice, before finally proclaiming, let now my penis be praised. That's the kind of God I want to worship. No shame, no prudery. The churches will be full every Sunday. Think of the sermons. And Father Enki did say, I don't care if you covet your neighbour's ox. I have but one commandment. Get down on your knees and worship this. It can dig irrigation ditches. Though I'll wipe the dirt off before you get down there. If only he thought to twist it into the shape of a hamburger, Enki might still be going today like puppetry the penis. The moment I first read about Enki, I knew that his proclamation must become a rallying call of modern-day phallic worship. Let now my penis be praised. Surely that isn't a statement that should be restricted to masturbating supreme beings. It's not just the penises of gods that are capable of such creativity. We should all, men and women, be similarly awed by the everyday power of our own genitalia. The ancient Egyptians, the Sumerians, weren't the only culture to acknowledge that God was a wanker. The ancient Egyptians worshipped a deity called Atum, or Atom, who didn't need six days to create the universe. Six minutes would probably have been plenty for him. Hieroglyphics in the pyramid show him boasting, I created on my own every being. My fist became my spouse. I copulated with my hand. It makes you wonder if the unsanitary conditions of any adolescent's bedroom could facilitate the spontaneous creation of life. Most of their duvets are practically identical to the primeval swamp. But the universe wasn't enough for Atom. Another pyramid utterance reads, Atom was creative in that he proceeded to masturbate with himself in Heliopolis. He put his penis in his hand that he might obtain the pleasure of a mission thereby. And there was a brother, and there was born his brother and sister, that is Shu and Tefnut. Shu and Tefnut must have had some serious psychological issues when they found out where they'd come from. That's got to be the ultimate hand-me-down. One source even claims that the Egyptian god of creation recrafted the universe on a daily basis by masturbating, swallowing his own sperm and then spitting it out. A bas-relief on the walls of the temple of Karnak suggests that he may have achieved this by sucking his own penis. So we know how he would have answered at least one of the questions on my questionnaire, right, fellas? Or... Um or on uh, the Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast. Also, at Karnak is proof that the penis was not just seen as a creative force, but one that epitomised the destructive power of masculinity. A pharaoh called Menefata, Menefata, uh, probably, defeated the Libyan army in around 1300 BC, and a victory monument was built, which recalls the rather grim trophies he chose to keep to commemorate his conquest. Penises of Libyan General Six, penises cut off of Libyan 6,359, Sicilians killed, penises cut off 222, Etruscans killed, penises cut off 542, Greeks killed, penises given to the king 6,111. I feel sorry for whoever had to do the final count on that one. I can imagine him moving the penises from one part to another, maybe losing count of the Greek penises halfway through and having to start again, then getting angry when he discovers an Etruscan penis in the pile of Sicilian ones. Who put this here? How am I meant to work under these conditions? This ritual emasculation of every defeated enemy warrior, whether killed, injured or just captured, took its origin from the myth of Isis and Osiris. There's a different few different versions of this story, so I'm going to try and give you the gist of them all. The god Osiris was defeated in battle by his brother Set. 
sometimes Seth or Typhoon, and then cut into 13 or possibly 14 pieces. The bits were scattered all over the world and then reassembled by Osiris' twin sister Isis, making the world's first mummy. She found everything but his penis, maybe because that had been thrown into the sea and eaten by a fish or alternatively by a Nile crab. Isis reconstructed a phallus, either by crafting a golden dildo or by turning herself into a hawk and then furiously flapping her wings to tease out a new penis. I've seen a lot of adverts for penile enlargement, but all fan- rather fanciful but none of them employs our feathered friends. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it. That hawk might mistake your burgeoning penis for a worm and it could all turn to a bit of a gender realignment. Now, someone somehow this reconstructed Osiris managed to use his bionic knob to impregnate his sister. I know it seems distasteful, a woman having sex with her emasculated zombie mummy brother, but different rules apply for gods and apparently they'd already had sex in the womb, so after that anything goes. And the resulting offspring, Horus, then hunted down Set and cut off his knob in revenge. Apparently the fish and the crab got off scot-free, probably by each other arguing it was the other was responsible. That's often how it's done. This confused and insane story, not much more insane than any religion though, was so important to the Egyptians that they reenacted the event annually in a gilded representation of Osiris's knob, 150 cubits high, equivalent to half the length of Noah's Ark, was carried through the streets by priests. It's my aim to see this tradition reintroduced. It would liven up the parade your local fate, wouldn't it? I'm not proposing we bring back the enemy cock-cutting off bit, though, only because I know that I'd end up being the one who has to count them. The extent to which this penis with the penis was believed to be invested with power is revealed by Sarah Denning in her excellent book, The Mythology of Sex. She writes that a sacred king, upon ascension to his phone, throne, had to eat the genitals of the one he had deposed in order to absorb the holy power that they were thought to contain as a result of intimate union with the goddess queen. If only Clinton had known about that, he could have claimed that Monica Lewinsky was attempting some kind of coup d'etat. In ancient Britain, the ancestors of some of the biggest prudes ever to walk this earth were not against joining in with the phallic festivities. Sanding stones and maypoles both owe their existence to the penis worship. Uh, I suspect that Morris dancers clacking their sticks together has some kind of homoerotic cock-based significance. But if not, then what are those ridiculous men, if not knobs, personified? But England is also home to what I've also considered to be the greatest cock celebration in all history. The cover star of this book, the Cernabus Giant, sometimes known as the Rude Man. His origins are shrouded in myth and mystery, though he may originally date from the Iron Age. Suspiciously, suspiciously the first documented mention of the figure appears in the mid-18th century, and there is some speculation that the giant is a sophisticated and anti-Puritan hoax. It seems unlikely to me that such a late and sudden appearance would itself go undocumented, and most historians agree that the figure is probably a representation of Hercules dating from the reign of Emperor Commodus. AD 1080-193. Carved into the chalk bedrock on a Dorset hillside, the naughty hill figure stands at 100 feet, 180 feet, 60 metres in height, with a penis that in human proportion comes out at an astonishing 14.5 inches. Moreover, it is standing impossibly proud, tight against his stomach, and he's kept it like that for hundreds of years. Blimey, his balls must ache. He speaks of a more liberal England of yesteryear, a bloke proudly saying, look at my massive cock, and if you don't, I'm going to twat you with this club. I remember a visit to the Cernabus Giant as a child and how shocking it was to see such a graphic image so brazenly displayed. It was also funny and subversive and I liked the idea of the joke stretching through the ages, linking me to my equally puerile ancestors. But there was a part of me that was intimidated and not just because of that club. Raw masculine power combined with flagrant masculine sexuality. I was humbled and awed. When I began this project, it was obvious the rude man would make the perfect figurehead for this rude man's campaign. So imagine how disappointed I was to discover that 
that prior to 1908, his cock was about six feet shorter than it now appears. Because the figure is cut ch- into chalk, the lines have to be rescoured every couple of decades or the grass grows back and the image disappears. Illustrations from before the 20th century shown with a smaller, though still supernaturally erect, penis topped with what is generally taken to be his navel. So early 20th century, some early 20th century wag or incompetent decided to incorporate the navel into the phallus. And one of the earliest and most successful penile extensions was performed from 4.8 metres to 7.2. Pretty impressive. That seemed to make the carving less emblematic for me. A proportionally more average schlong is less impressive and less humorous. And thus the camaraderie, I feel, of those randy ancient Britons seems to be lessened. Yet looking at the before and after pictures that are in the book, I began to wonder if this really was his navel. It's awfully big, admittedly so are his nipples, but then he is aroused, and parallel with his ribs. Is it not more likely that it's been taken to be his navel is in fact an impressive bell end? We have enough already read about the cock that looked like a golf ball on a stick, if you've got the book. Is it possible that this is what we're observing here? Possibly our Herculean giant is still comically large and yet reassuringly unusual. But even if we accept the truth that the giant is close to the norm in the trouser department, not that he seems to care too much for his trousers, it actually makes him a more fitting logo for the for cock PLC. He becomes a more realistic, less intimidating everyman figure in all but the angle of his dangle, teaching us that it's not the size of your club, but the way you swing it, baby. In any case, I don't suppose it matters how big he is or exactly when he appeared. Whatever the truth, for at least the last 350 years and possibly for over 2,000, the citizens of that small Dorset town have ensured the grass never grows too long to hide the figure or his weapons so their jolly green giant greets them each new day with his growing morning glory. Nor has his virility diminished. Spending a night sleeping on the hillside, preferably within the borders of the phallus itself, is believed to help a woman conceive something that can be precipitated by bringing your lover along and doing the deed there and then. No wonder the rude man is constantly and impressively erect with all that hot action taking place on his knob. He's only human. Ancient Greece and Rome... It was the ancient Greeks who had to take the penis celebration too far. Previous cultures had continued to worship female fertility as well as male, but the Greeks made made masculine supremacy so complete that women's role in reproduction was demoted to the status of a bag of fertiliser in which the man planted his seed. This seed, they believed, was a miniature human that was unlike, that was literally thrust into the throw where it grew like a plant. Aristotle likened man to a carpenter creating a baby from wood that, that is woman, adding that while the body is from the female, it's the soul that is from the male. I bet the ladies love that attitude. I wonder if the homosexuality that was rife in their society came about through choice or necessity. In under 10,000 years, human perception had been skewed from the belief that women were totally responsible for creating life to the fact that men were. Inevitably, such ideas would have an effect on women's place in society, whether they were whether they're the cause or confirmation of a paternalistic society. And as you'll see, they remain accepted embarrassingly until well into the 19th century. The Greeks and the Romans were certainly not afraid or ashamed to revere the purple piccolo. Priapus was a god in both cultures, though embraced more enthusiastically by the Romans. He was dwarfish, which was an ugly, dwarfish with an ugly face and misshapen body, but he had a cock big enough to fill a wheelbarrow, which is probably why they made him the god of gardens. Statues of the Priapus of sporting his enormous stiffy were put in Roman gardens in the hope of discouraging thieves. I'm imagining a pornographic version of Wurzel Gummidge here, and it's not the head that's interchangeable, and we're usually accompanied by warnings in verse. Richard Zacks quotes this one in his delightfully rude book, History Laid Bare. When you get the urge for a fig and are about to reach out to steal one, stare long and hard at me and try to guess what shitting a 20-pound, two-foot-long two turd would feel like. 
Um, although sex and violence were often linked in the human psyche, an erection was also heralded as a tool of pleasure. Far from being indecent, they painted and carved Jimes and Cox all over the walls of their villas, as is seen in the numerous statues and reliefs preserved by the volcanic ash which engulfed Pompeii in AD 79. Uh, I show the, the He Lies Happiness one that I mentioned in the show, but when I was... Um, I went to the Pompeii exhibition in uh, the British Museum last week and there's a brilliant statue of Pan having sex with a goat, uh, which is was also in someone's garden. Uh, it's fairly graphic. He was a half goat himself, so it's not so bad, but it was one of my favourite things in that museum, seeing modern-day schoolboys goggle-eyed. I'm not believing what they were seeing. It was quite a... Quite a difficult thing to see yourself. It's clear that up to this point in history, the penis was seen as a thing of joy, not a shame of male shames, a source of male shame. So what's responsible for the change in the penis's standing? Why don't we celebrate it in the same way today? Uh, the seeds of change were sown in the strict sexual laws of the ancient Hebrews. The founders of Judaism were more patriarchal than the Greeks and Jewish law regards human male genitalia with the highest respect. In fact, it was seen to be divine that even to write its proper name might attract evil spirits, which his wife of the Bible refers to as thigh or hollow of the thigh. Solemn oaths were made while placing the hand upon the testicles, which is how we arrived at the modern word testify. In Deuteronomy, we learn that he whose testicles are crushed or whose male member is cut off shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, which is really adding insult to injury. And also that a woman who makes a man a grab for a man's equipment should be punished by having her hand cut off, even if in doing so she was merely trying to protect him. Circumcision was, of course, an acceptable and necessary injury. Uh, more than anything clearly demonstrates the connection between the penis and the divine in the mindset of the Jews. God had commanded his chosen people to go forth and multiply, and the Jewish people took this very seriously indeed. Sex for them was primarily a function for creating children, and so any aspect of sex for sex's sake was frowned upon. Masturbation, homosexuality, and generally spilling sperm anywhere but inside a vagina were all taboo. In effect, the penis became so holy that the old Tsar's celebration of it, or even deriving much pleasure from it, became blasphemous. The cock was becoming a victim of its own success. Graven images were a big no-no too, so the days of 225 feet cocks being paraded down streets were also numbered. Even stricter rules of morality developed to protect the bloodline of the wandering Jews. Much of this was, of course, at the expense of the women, who were, for example, ordered to be shunned when menstruating, which shows a certain degree of wisdom in my experience. Patriarchy was now unshakable and ordained by religious commandment. Such laws perhaps make sense for the survival of a troubled community with no homeland, keen to protect their genetic identity, and one would not have expected these ancient edicts to influence almost the entire planet. But as Sarah Denning argues, these dour attitudes were later to become incorporated into Christianity and were a key factor in the Christian attitude of hostility towards the expressions of sexuality. Jesus himself had nothing to say directly about the penis beyond promoting monogamy, yet still thinking it was a bad idea to throw stones at adulterous women. He didn't talk about sex all that much. It was the people who popularised ideas who really drove home that sexual desires were wicked and the penis was an instrument of evil. The 4th century bishop Augustine was the prime exponent of anti-prick propaganda. Annoyingly, he's one of those blokes who put it around a bit in his youth, then felt all guilty about it, so devoted the rest of his life to telling everyone else they shouldn't do what he'd just done. His struggle between promiscuity and monogamy, not exactly a unique experience for a man, is summed up by the prayer he made while still in his sharking phase, God grant me the strength to be chaste, just not yet. He associated sex with guilt and considered the ultimate sin to be the disobedience in the member. So if you ever got a spontaneous erection on a bus or in your sleep or in your maiden aunt's drawing room, then you are a sinner, my friend. No wonder hell is such a busy place. If he'd just been an ordinary bloke having these ideas, then Augustine might merely have gone on to create an early version of the Wicked Willy cartoon, which would have given everyone a laugh for a couple of years before deservedly disappearing into oblivion. And no one would have thought about him again, except when saying, remember that Wicked Willy thing? Shit, wasn't it? 
Unfortunately, he was a bishop, not just one of those unimportant ones who says stupid things and everyone ignores. He was extremely influential, and the older he got, the more stupid he became. Eaten away with self-imposed post-guilt, Augustine advocated stopping having sex at all, and to him, even doing your own wife was a sin. He wasn't completely stupid. He knew that without sex there'd be no babies, which is why baptism became paramount. Because genitalia, genitalia, sperm and sex were all contaminated, the carnal sins of the parents had to be literally washed off the child with special magic holy water or anti-cock potion in this case. You'd think someone would have stood up to this nonsense and bashed the bishop. And of course they did. Bishop Julian of Eclanum brilliant and eloquently dismissed Augustine's view. God made bodies, he wrote, distinguished the sexes, made genitalia, bestowed affection through his which bodies could be joined, give, gave power to semen and operates in the secret nature of semen and God made nothing evil. Augustine agreed, arguing it wasn't God but the sin of Adam that had made all this stuff happen. Even a child could have seen that if God created everything from scratch, he must have created God, Adam's propensity for evil as well as the very concept of evil itself. Unfortunately, the only child available at the time was busy in town centre pointing out that the emperor had no clothes on, so Augustine got away with it and somehow won the argument. Sworn off sex, Augustine had decided instead to fuck Western culture for the foreseeable future. The fate of the penis was sealed. As Friedman puts it, Once honoured as the engine of life by the men who built the pyramids in the Parthenon, once revered as the god within by the desert tribe that gave the West monotheism and the idea of the Messiah, this sacred staff was toppled from its pedestal and erased from Western cultural lexicon. In its place came the demon rod, the corrupter of all mankind. Christian anticock attitudes did not put a complete stop to penile celebrations. Uh, 15th century dandies even emphasised and enhanced their penises with brightly coloured cod pieces. Though there is an argument that these came about in order to prevent the mercury-based unguents used to treat syphilis from ruining the men's fine clothing. People quite clearly did not stop having sex, and there was certainly no much decadence and debauchery still going on. Ironically, yet typically, a lot of it committed by the very people who were telling everyone else not to do it. Virtually all women found guilty of being witches during the Inquisition, along with all the other crimes they attempted to admitted to under torture, confessed to having had knowledge of the devil's penis. Most of these demon whores described Satan's cock as being cold, but beyond that it varied enormously. Some said it was the size of a donkey's knob and ejaculated a thousand times more semen than a man. It was often black in colour, greedy, scaly like a fish. Occasionally it was forked, and sometimes it was on his behind as if someone had been playing a slightly unsavoury version of pin the tail on the donkey. These diverse descriptions didn't make people suspicious that the confessions had been forced. As Friedman concludes, instead, they led a French, Inquisit- led a French inquisitor to suggest that Satan served many witches, some witches, better than others. One would have hoped that the triumph for science over superstition would rid the world of these ridiculous, judgmental and sexist perceptions about our genitalia. Unfortunately, the enlightened thinkers just made things worse. In 1685, continuing the Greek idea of women as nothing more than grow bags, Antony van Leeuwenhoek, Leeuwenhoek declared that he believed there might be a tiny preformed man contained in every man contained in every sperm. Other scientists backed up his assertion, claiming to observe sperm under microscopes and seen the tiny fellas, or homunculi, crouching inside their protective spunk bubble, ready to be planted to their mums where they could grow into babies. Even more embarrassing, it wasn't until 1875 that Oscar Hertwig put forward the theory that babies were actually created by the fusion of sperm and ovum, something proven four years later by Hermann Foll using a somewhat more efficient microscope than his predecessors. As you'll see in later chapters, the homunculi were one of the less stupid mistakes made by scientists and thinkers. It's possibly rash to see a link between Foll's discovery and the rise of the suffragette movement, but it might hold some indication of the subconscious effect this issue had had on us all. At the very least, the realisation of female importance in reproduction must have had something to do to raise the battered esteem 
of womankind. It may seem, may seem strange that Queen Victoria in her reign associated with sexual repression. After all, she did have nine kids. She must have been a bit of a goer. However, like Augustine, Victoria greatly enjoyed sex in her early life, but after the death of Albert, she turned to supposedly permanent celibacy and po-faced prudery, though rumour has it she was secretly shagging Billy Connolly. As she outlived Albert by 40 years, her protracted mourning and inhibitions filtered down to the unfortunate populace. Even sex within marriage was frowned upon, which possibly explains why prostitution flourished. The influence on the repressed Britain of the 20th century is not too difficult to spot. Despite all the shame and confusion, early 20th century man at least had the comfort of knowing he was head of his household and that men ruled the world. The glorious rise of feminism had seen these ideas kicked into metaphorical nadges in the metaphorical nadges all these years of patriarchal rule based on physical strength and a misunderstanding of the laws of reproduction were coming to an end men were also being made to feel personally guilty for the centuries of female subject subjugation they were being informed that they were all at worst potential rapists and at best the useless bit of skin attached to the penis Religious shame was compounded by social shame, while at the same time men's traditional roles in industry were also being eroded. eroded. When Lorena Bobbitt, Bobbitt cut off her husband's penis, it served as a metaphor for the emasculation of the entire male six, sex in the late 20th century. Not so much for John Wayne Bobbitt. For him, it was more of a quite unpleasant experience, but one that I'm sure was lessened by his immediate appreciation of the metaphorical significance. And anyway, he got to appear in some porno films, so I bet he wasn't bothered. The worm had turned as Bobbitt's worm was returned. The cock celebration was over. Looking back over this chapter, even as a man, it's difficult to feel much sympathy for the male sex. And I'm sure that many women at this point sarcastically rubbing their eyes and saying, boo-hoo. And while I'm personally delighted that there's been a feminist backlash and the injustice of thousands of years of patriarchy are beginning to be undone, I don't believe the answer is to replace that patriarchy with a matriarchy. If you think that, uh, if you think about it, the thousands of years of belief that men were solely responsible for creating babies were preceded by thousands of years of belief that women alone generated life. The former belief is no more laughable than the latter. It's a bit more laughable, given the obvious origin of all babies, but you get my point. The reality is that creating a child requires both a man and a woman, at least for the moment. The truth isn't a cue to stop celebrating the penis. It's a cue for us all to celebrate the creativity of our reproductive organs. If all along we'd been praising Enki's massive cock as well as the Venus of Willendorf's capacious cunt, then the world, the world might not be in quite the mess it is at the moment. This doesn't need to be a competition. If we use contraception, we can enjoy sex for sex sake like our carefree and ignorant caveman ancestors. If we don't, we can create another human life. If there is a God, then surely that is what he intended, unless he's both cruel and insane as well as crafty. If you think that sex is some kind of corruption, then the, this world of rutting animals must be a very miserable place for you. But just close your curtains and pretend it's not happening. So that was uh, chapter two of uh, Talking Cock, which you can buy from GoFasterStrike.com. Uh, do come along and um, see the show if you can or buy the DVD later on and I uh, hope you're enjoying these podcasts and next week I am going to I've been looking at the threesome question if you, have you ever had a threesome uh, so if you have any amusing stories about having a threesome uh, or group sex of any kind or your or failure to do so or your desire to do so then you can email them into herring1967 at googlemail.com um, but I don't you know don't just send porn through, <laughs> either written or visual. Um, <laughs> we'll, I'll probably talk about uh, my own experience of this, though, as well. And uh, they, they're quite funny, the things I've found. So we'll talk about that, and that'll be next week's episode. And also, uh, on next week's episode, uh, I am going to give you some interesting cock facts. So if you haven't had a threesome and are not interested in that, and are interested in... Um, uh, if you have any interesting... Uh, 
short facts about the penis, then do send them in. Uh, someone on a gig was telling me that... Oh, I can't remember what it was, which creature it was. I'm not going back to re-record the whole thing now, but uh, I'll, I'll try and remember what her fact was for next week. All right. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to my long history of the penis. <laughs> my long penis. Ha <laughs> ha. Bye-bye.